Have you ever wondered why some businesses fail while others succeed? Unfortunately, most businesses fail. In fact, studies indicate 70% of startups never make it to their fifth year. Fortunately, knowledge is power, and in this five-part series, you will learn first how to spot the warning signs of business failure, and second, the best practices for leading successful businesses. It is my pleasure to introduce Patrick Finneran. Pat has over 34 years of business leadership experience, ranging from entrepreneurial work with private equity firms to large-scale enterprise management. He is a retired Marine Corps officer and Vietnam combat veteran. He is the president of Accelerated Performance Solutions, a business consulting company. Pat is the former CEO at Saberliner Corporation and is a retired senior executive at the Boeing Company. In this five-part series, Pat will reveal the timeless lessons that give you the edge you need to avoid the pitfalls and overcome the odds. Each episode contains powerful strategies, management guides, and tactical approaches to help you grow your business, improve your company's performance, and master a positive, respectable brand. Sponsored by Ascension Transformation Solutions, this is Leading Successful Businesses. So there are thousands of books written on the subject of leadership and thousands more written on the subject of business. But ironically, there are very few books that are written about leadership and business. I think that's part of the problem with some of the businesses that are struggling today. Even businesses that are right now perhaps making money are still struggling a bit in today's environment. And I really think it's because they don't understand what leadership is. Matter of fact, outside of the elite combat units in the military, I'm not sure that many people understand what leadership is today. And I find that ironic because if you talk to most civilians, they would tell you that the military is command and control, it's authoritarian, it's do what I say to do. And yet, in elite combat units, it's just the opposite. They're flexible. Decision-making is at the lowest possible level. It has to be because of the environment they are in. Yeah, there's a structure. There's a rank structure. There's a command structure. But good leaders know when to step out of the way of a more empowered subordinate who is the right leader for that moment. Leader and rank are not equivalent. I can recall in my own experience, we had a major crisis in the development of the F-18 ENF Super Hornet. We had an event called Wing Drop. And no, the wing didn't fall off the airplane. Wing Drop was an abrupt, uncommanded turn at a critical point in the flight envelope. And we didn't have an immediate answer. And we had a great team, 6,000 terrific engineers. And I called a chief engineer in the office and I said, you've got to take the lead. I'm not an engineer. I can, I can provide you all kind of support. I'll get you whatever support you need, but you need to take the lead and run this because this is a technical problem. I'll take care of all the normal day-to-day stuff. You won't have to worry about that, but I'll also make sure that you get everything you need to solve this problem. Long story short, it took us a little longer than we'd wanted, but our team was fantastic. They looked at places where we could reduce the flight test program because we'd already proven those test points. They looked at places where we had redundancy that we could take out. And we ended up uh, flying 
over 300 unplanned test flights to identify and prove we'd resolve this problem. And yet we still finished flight tests on cost and on schedule. It was an amazing endeavor. It's knowing when to get out of the way, just being part of a leader. I don't think people understand that today. The whole thing about leadership is trust. Leaders have to trust their people and people have to trust the leader. And, and trust is built over time. You don't earn trust by your position or your rank. You own trust by your behavior. And you own trust by truly empowering your people. And empowering is not the same as delegating. I can delegate a task to you and I can tell you exactly what to do and how it's supposed to be done when I want it done. That's delegating. Empowering is giving you a mission. I learned about empowering when I was a lieutenant in the Marine Corps because we were given mission-oriented orders. They didn't tell us exactly how to take that enemy objective. They told us to take the enemy objective. And so with your platoon and with the help of the platoon sergeant, some guard leaders, you'd, you'd figure out how to take that objective. And, and what the higher echelons would do was provide you the gunfire support you needed, the artillery you needed, the air you needed, whatever you needed to support you and, and achieving that objective. Again, that's what good leaders do. So this series is about leading and the tools a leader uses to empower the team. It's about success. So what is success? Success is achieving the goals you set. And, and you as the leader, in conjunction with your team, if you're a good leader, you're going to set realistic, attainable goals. And so if you want to say you're leading a successful business, the only way to do that is have goals that are align with what it is you ultimately want to do, what business you're in, what your vision is, what your mission is, and then make sure that you put the system in place to achieve those goals. And finally, we're in a business. I mean, what is a business? Well, a business is all about creating value. And first of all, it's about creating value for your customers. It's not about shareholder value cannot be the first thing you think about. And I know there are people who will hear this and that will cause them to have heart palpitations. Shareholders deserve a fair return. You as a leader need to know how to give that to them. If all you focus on is that, you'll fail. May, may not be right away, but you will fail because shareholder value ultimately comes from customer satisfaction. So if you don't create real value for your customers, someone else will. And when they do, that's where your customers are going to go. A, a leader's unique role is to pull everyone in the organization together around a compelling vision. And that compelling vision needs to be a clear vision of what the future state can be. And then help with his team to create the strategy and the goals and the plans to achieve that vision. And only the leader can do that. A leader has to be proactive in shaping the future. Otherwise, I'll be following the competition. And as the great hockey player Wayne Gretzky said, you don't follow the puck. You skate to where the puck is going to be. So before we leaf off into the future, let's talk about some basics. If I were to walk into a business today and they were to say, help us grow our business. The first thing that I would want to do is say, well, where are you today? 
let's take a realistic look at where you are today. My first question is, what business are you in? And listen to how narrowly they define that. I'm in the restaurant business. Well, what does that mean? Well, it means we prepare and, uh, and serve food and we clean up. Okay, I can see that's your basic system. But what happens when COVID strikes? Are you still in the restaurant business? Maybe now you become into the food service business because maybe now you're going to do home delivery or you're going to team with Uber Eats or uh, Grubhub or somebody like that to do home delivery. You're going to do curbside. Maybe you're going to shift from your traditional format to a new format to provide food service. You see, that's not a subtle difference. You weren't really in the restaurant business all along. You've always been in the food services business, but your mindset was I'm in the restaurant business. Your mindset was people come in, sit at a table, and my waiter goes over, takes the order, brings it back to the kitchen. It's a system. Everything has a system. They follow their system. But if you're in the food services business, your system is different. Now, a lot of the restaurants here in my hometown, small town of Noonan, Georgia, which just survived a heck of a tornado, our restaurants caught off pretty quick, mostly because they're small entrepreneurial restaurants. They're not Leviathans that are controlled by some corporate headquarters that's not facing the same kind of challenges the small businesses are. They were agile and they did a great job. So what business are you in? And then why are you in this business? What's your, what's your passion? What, what, what do you want to do this for? Why do you want to come in every day? Now, you have to answer those kind of questions. Who are your customers and what are their needs? I can remember that just about the end of McDonald Aircraft, just before we were acquired by Boeing, we were in the early phases of competition for something called the Joint Strike Fighter, which is the F-35 aircraft today. And we were late to the game. Boeing, which is really not a defense company at that point in time, had an offering that made the cut. It was in the competition. We did not make the cut. And Lockheed Martin was in the, in the competition. What was Lockheed Martin win, hands down? Why? We didn't understand who the customers were and what the needs were. Now, flash forward to about 2000. And two. And I was given the assignment to be responsible for our Navy Marine Corps business. And one of the things there was a competition for the next multi-mission maritime aircraft. The, the Navy uses the, used the P3 Electra to do all their anti-submarine and, and shipping patrols. And there was a competition between us and Lockheed Martin. And Lockheed had a, a warmed-over vision of the uh, the P3. Uh, called a P7. They knew the market well. They'd had that market for years. That was their domain. Nobody thought we had a prayer because our entry was a 737 derivative. So we had a conversation based on our JSF experience. And we said, gosh, who are our customers? Well, there's three of them. There's the people who fly the airplane, guys in the fleet, as they call it in the Navy. There are the people who sit in the Pentagon and draw up requirements uh, some of which require miracles to achieve. And then there's the contracts people, the acquisition 
organization more than the contracts people. The acquisition organization then determines whether or not you fully complied with the request for proposal. And their job is to make sure you did everything that was in the request for proposal, not necessarily whether or not you had the best airplane. That may be a bit unfair because they do have source selection teams that, that really do guide them on the best airplane. And it really, in all honesty, the government's got a pretty good process. You just have to understand what it is and be willing to work with it. So I got our guys together and said, okay, we have three customers. It's the fleet, it's the requirements guys in the Pentagon, and it's the acquisition guys in the systems command. How do we meet the requirements of all three of those? The first thing I did was I changed my, my competition leader to a Navy admiral. He wasn't a P3 guy, but he was a Navy guy who understood the Navy. And then I brought in some P3 expertise from guys in our team and basically said, what do you need? I'm, I'm, I don't know anything about P3s. I don't know anything about the mission. I can't. I got 20 million other things to do. You're empowered. What do you need help? Let's go get it. But let's meet once a week and talk about it. And, and finally, our mantra became, we want the guys in the fleet screaming for our airplane. We want them sending emails to the Pentagon saying, this is the airplane we want to fly in this mission. We want the requirements guys to say, this meets the requirements better than anybody else. And we want the acquisition guys to say, can't find a reason not to give them the contract. And that was our strategy. Long story short, the P-8, which was the airplane that came out of that competition, was is being built today by the Boeing company and being sold all over the world. And it's a 737-800 body with a 737-900 wing, and it's an awesome airplane. So knowing your customers and their needs gives you the leverage and the flexibility to do what you need to do to meet those needs. You also need to understand the environment. More than ever before, you need to understand the environment today. We're a global economy. Now, we can talk all day long about the U.S. economy, but we are in a global economy. Now, the restaurant on Main Street down in Noonan, Georgia, may not feel like it, and they may feel like they're in the Noonan economy. And to some extent, they are. But the pricing that impacts their goods and services is a result of what's going on in the global economy. You can't escape it. Been to the gas pump lately? global economy, political, domestic, and international. Again, you say, what's the international politics got to do with a small town in, in, in Noonan, Georgia, for example? You can see how it would affect a Boeing or a Lockheed or somebody like that. Hard to see the direct impact, but international politics impacts domestic politics, impacts local politics. And so whether that is in terms of Rules and regulations relative to the environment, which come out of the Paris Treaty on Climate Accords. Sustainability is a real thing for everybody. It's it truly is a real thing. I'm not sure we always manage it right, but it's a real thing. And now it's going to impact a restaurant in Newton, Georgia. Technological. You know, we talk about being in a knowledge-based economy. That's good if you're a Stanford MBA. We're in a knowledge-based economy with probably one of the worst school systems in the world. So 
how do you go out and recruit the kind of talent you need in order to compete in this global economy? When I was at Boeing, and now this has been, oh, 15, almost 20 years ago, we could not hire mechanics out, out of the school systems, high school systems in, in St. Louis. We had to work with Fluorescent Valley Community College to send them to courses, and we paid for this. We hired them and sent them to this, these classes to improve their reading skills and their math skills so they could use the computer-based technology that we had to build the airplanes. Now, good for us and good for them. And we did have great support from the, the union in doing that because it benefited everybody. And that's what it's going to take. It's going to take investing now in the people who really want to work for you and do a job. They're not coming to you ready-made. How do you meet your customers' enduring needs? Cost, schedule, and quality. That's their enduring needs. They want to buy something at a reasonable price. They want it to work, and they want to be able to get it when they want it. They don't, have to, they don't want it to be on back order on Amazon. What are their emerging requirements? Wow. Maybe it's working remote. That could be an emerging requirement that we haven't really thought a whole lot about. Is it gonna change post-COVID? I don't think so. This stuff works pretty good, you know? Working safely. You know, we used to talk about security. You know, we could have, we have security companies. Now it's working safely. How do you work in an environment where COVID's never gonna go away? Now COVID's here to stay. Everybody needs to understand that. It's a virus and they don't go away, just like the flu. My forecast is we'll be taking annual COVID shots, but that's just my forecast. I'm not a doctor. But how do we address a safe environment for our employees? How do we make the environment safe for them, physically safe for them, medically safe for them, and culturally safe for them in a nation with a divided culture? What kind of challenge has a leader got in doing that? We really have to learn how to be open and inclusive and, and value diversity and embrace diversity to the point where diversity merges together into a coherent team. And the only way to do that is to be open to it. You cannot push away from it. And how profitable is the market space you're in? You could have a market space with a few really wealthy customers. I read an article the other day that said most of them are buying islands off the coast of Mexico someplace. So that may be a little tough market. You can do it by volume. Uh, Amazon, Amazon's volume. Oh, Amazon is, is a breakthrough company. You have to admire everything they do. And, and they do it by volume. But you could buy from the government. I mean, more and more the government controls the economy. You can buy from the government. Now, having spent uh, 22 years as a government contractor and then recently as a consultant to the government, uh, if you're willing to put up with all the rules and regulations and the bureaucracy, the government is a good, solid customer. People who work for the government are just like people on this podcast. You know, they're all great people. They're just constrained by their own bureaucratic rules and they didn't make those rules, but, but they have to live by them. And so you have to live by them too. And again, it's like diversity. You can fight it and all you do is give both everybody a headache or you can embrace it and say, okay, I've got to go out and buy a million dollars worth of insurance to have this government contract. Okay, that's what I got to do. I go do it. Next. No. So 
That's the basics. That's hard all by itself. Now, how the heck are you going to lead a successful business in that environment? Well, the first thing you're going to do is you're going to build a solid foundation. You're going you're gonna to know where you are, and you're going to build a solid foundation to grow on. Because if you don't build a solid foundation, if you try to grow on the foundation we just talked about, what do you think that house is going to do? It's going to fall. It's going to crumble. Well, is it the Gospel of Matthew talks about building your house on rock and not sand? What I just talked about was quicksand. It was not even just sand. And so how do we then build our house on a rock? Well, from experience, not reading books, although I read a ton of books, from experience, it's building a good long-range plan. People say three to five years. I'll say five years minimum. In today's world, things are happening so fast. But you've got to build this long-range plan. It's got to be set up on a, a series of specific guidelines so that it's going to be a plan that's flexible and, and allows you to adjust as the environment adjusts over that five-year period. Planning is, first of all, it's got to be a disciplined process. And we'll talk about that in a minute. It's got to involve your whole team, as much of the team as you can involve. When I was at Boeing, I was privileged to, to lead my, my last operational job. I was privileged to lead an organization with 16,000 people. We weren't going to get 16,000 inputs, but we could get inputs from the leaders of those divisions of those 16,000 people. And they could get inputs and on down the line, the same way you flow requirements down, we could flow questions down and get feedback back up. Now, I just work with my current client, which is a veterinary hospital, and I interviewed every employee of trying to find out what they thought was important in putting together uh, a vision for the future. The focus has got to be on how do we meet the customer's needs? How do we ensure they're happy? We can meet their needs and they can still be unhappy. How do we meet their needs? How do we keep them happy? How do you convince them that we've created value for them? And how do you explain to them, especially with the cost going up, how in the absence of value, price is an issue. But since we're creating value and our costs are going up, your price is going up. How do you explain that to somebody who comes in whose dog has a broken leg? All they care about is a broken leg and they don't have enough money to pay for it because we don't deal with a few wealthy clients. We deal with the community and it's a wonderful community and we're blessed to be here. And we know how important those pets are to those people. So when we're building this, view, this vision for the future, those are the kind of things that we have to take into consideration. So if you're going to build a long range plan, the main elements, you've got to have a great vision. And we'll talk about all these in detail in a minute. You need to understand, because once you have your vision, from there you can glean your values. Once you have your vision and values, you can, you can really articulate your mission. Once you have your mission, you can go back into that vision and, and you can shred out the key elements of that mission that become your strategic goals. They're your five-year goals. You don't expect to meet these goals all in year one. It's going to take you the whole five years to make goals. And if it takes you longer, it takes you longer, but it's going to take you at least those five years. And then 
you need a strategy. And we'll talk about strategy in a minute. It's the most misunderstood phrase in the English language, a word in the English language. Then you need a business plan, an annual business plan, because you can't do this all at once. You got to take it a bite at a time. Uh, and that annual business plan is so what are the specific actions I'm going to take this year that are going to lead me to that vision? And so to do that, you have to start with the end in mind. And then you have to work backwards and say, okay, if this is the vivid description of my future state, what is that minus one year? What is it minus two, three, four, five? It takes a lot of effort and a lot of work. But that effort and work pays off because you don't waste time once you start. Once you start, you can go. And you can go like crazy. I remember you know, when I uh, took over our, our services business, I inherited kind of a mess. At that point in time, it was about a $3 billion division of Boeing. Did maintenance modifications and overhauls, contract logistics support, training, had a few classified programs. And uh, we did some international work uh, with the Brits, the Canadians, the Australians, and the Saudis, mostly. And I get there and I find out we've got five major programs. These are programs, $100 million plus programs. And they're all in a reach forward loss. Reach forward loss is an accounting term for you're never going to get there. Let's just write it off now. I had letters from unhappy customers. I had one letter that says that we're basically un-American. It was written by a special operations command general because we weren't getting the uh, AC-130U gunships to him on schedule. Had I been in his job, I would have probably been the same letter. The White House was unhappy. Uh, we were late delivering one of the two 747s that we maintained for the White House. So we had labor unions both blue-collar and white-collar labor unions who were unhappy and happy with us. And I'm thinking, vision? Who the heck has got time for a vision? I was deep in that reality of current state. Uh, as Stephen Covey said, I was caught up in the urgent, so much so that I couldn't see the important. I called a friend of mine, a guy named Bill Belgard, uh, and his partner Steve Rayner, and said, help. And boy, they were terrific. They came in and we basically took a two-pronged approach. Survive for now by doing whatever we needed to do while planning for the future. If you looked at our, our numbers, everybody makes fun of a hockey stick chart, you know, where you're going along flat and about 18 to 24 months later, you're all of a sudden doing great. I hated to brief that chart because nobody ever believes it. But while we were trugging along, making progress, but not much, we really had a team that was engaged in building for the future. So we did a realistic assessment. We put together a realistic, achievable, collaborative plan. Everybody was involved. As many people as we could get were involved. We involved the union. We involved corporate. We involved our customers. We involved everybody. We said, what do you like? What don't you like? What would you like to see? What would five years now look to you? The first cut at that that Bill and Steve gave me was uh, just shy of 60 pages long. And I remember looking at Bill going, this is not a lot of help. <laughs> we were able to work that down with the help of the team to a page and a half, which became five goals. How did it work out? Well, you're going to have to wait to hear that answer. But once we got that vision, we really started 
thinking about what are our core values. And I, I, was, I had a preconceived notion on core values that came from earlier in my career. Uh, it was my first ever uh, general management job. I was program manager for the Harrier program. And we had gotten a letter from the Royal Air Force saying that they had a problem with the Harriers that we needed to fix. And our lawyers and contracts people came and said, gosh, we'd love to go fix it, but they're going to have to pay for it because those airplanes are out of warranty. Well, we were in a war. It was called uh, Desert Storm. And it just didn't seem right to me that uh, we were going to basically have to do contracts and all that kind of stuff to get them back up to speed. I was upset about it. And on the way home, I was listening to an audio tape that I wanted to hear of Lou Holtz doing one of his motivational speeches. And it was a great audio tape. And it gets to a point where he says, there are three questions that I ask of my recruits and I expect them to ask, ask of me. And there are three questions that spouses should ask of each other, customers of the suppliers. And he said, the first question is, can I trust you? Because if I can't trust you, then we can't have a relationship because trust is the fundamental basis of relationships. The second question is, are you committed to excellence or are you just trying to get by? Because if you're just trying to get by, you won't work on the Notre Dame football team. You wouldn't work on one of my programs either. And the last question stopped me cold. And I, I, was, I remember I was driving a, I couldn't afford a new car in those days. I was driving a pre-owned Oldsmobile Tornado and it had a car phone in it. You all can visualize a car phone. It's about the size of a shoebox. And uh, a third question hit me because the third question was, do you care about me or just my money? And I immediately related that to this issue with the Royal Air Force. And uh, I told my secretary, I said, don't, don't send that letter. Let's wait. So that night I, uh, I rewrote the letter carefully. And uh, I signed it and I said, uh, fax this over. We're going to send a team over within 48 hours to fix those problems. And we'll worry about getting paid later if, if in fact, we deserve to get paid. And uh, I told the contracts, people, and lawyers, I'd done that. And they got very upset and it got all the way up to the president of the company who asked the contracts people to be quiet for a second because they were very upset. And he looked at me and he said, Pat, why'd you do that? And I said, well, sir, you know, I used to fly. And I remember it was a problem with canopies coming off airplanes. And I remember a night dive bombing mission in my airplane. And the canopy didn't come off, but it came open. And it's night and it's dive bombing. And I remember how much that distracted and scared me. And I thought about these pilots over there in combat, the people shooting at them. And the canopy suddenly just bursting off the airplane. And I wondered if that might cause one of them to crash and become a prisoner of war. And I said, I couldn't really stand that thought. So I decided we're going to fix the darn canopies. And if the contracts guys want to talk to the government of the UK about the contract, that's between them and the government of the UK. I'm, I'm worried about that squadron commander out there with the airplanes. The president of the company leaned back in his chair and he said, I'm glad I've got an executive like you, which made me eternally loyal to him. He said, we take care of our customers, they'll take care of us. Thank you, Pat. He looked at the head of contracts and he said, I think I would just leave this little moment. And uh, so my core values came out of that, of trust, excellence, and the care about me or my money became kind of cumbersome. So I, 
I mutated that into respect. But working with this team, I had this preconceived notion. They, they all knew my story. And, and probably out of loyalty, and I think it was loyalty, we ended up with those being the three values that we were going to use in operating our business. The most important thing is we discussed it, and we discussed the benefits of it. So there are deep beliefs that the basis of your character, the organization's character, they inform every decision you make. And that the first chart you put on the wall anytime you have a brief. Now, you know where you're going. You know what values are going to drive you. Your mission statement flows from there. It is not, this is not a chore anymore. Now, everybody struggles with their mission statement. The mission's got to be, it's, it's got to embrace the passion for what we do, okay, for our customers. It's got to talk about us being competent and how we add value. It's got to answer the question, why? Why am I doing this? You know? And the best example I could find was the mission statement of the University of Notre Dame. Not Father Jenkins, the current president's mission statement, but the mission statement that was put out by Father Soren in 1842 when he founded the university. He said, this university will be a force for good in the world. Now, it was a couple of small buildings on the plains of northern Indiana in the snow. And look at it today with people like Father Hesburgh, the former president, being on the Atomic Energy Commission, the Civil Rights Commission, marching across the bridge in Montgomery, hand in hand with Martin Luther King. Notre Dame has been out in front in everything that's happened in this country because they want to be a force for good in the world. They're not confused about that mission. Now, we see all that. Now we go back into that vision, and you shred out the key things, the pillars that hold that vision together. Actually, at this point, you sit back and look at it, and you watch them fall out, because they'll be that self-evident. They are how you implement it. They're measurable. They address all aspects of it, of, of your vision. They provide consistency of purpose. And it's generally not people, a lot of times, I was, I was briefing this to someone the other day, who is a not-for-profit organization. They said, this is all for business profit and money. I said, no, no, not. Pay attention. This is how you run any organization. You can run you know, your, your local uh, anything, small business with this. It's not, this is not big business stuff. It's good common sense stuff. So one of my clients, theirs is profitable growth because they're part of a larger corporation. That's, they have to, they have to do that. They do it anyway. They don't have a choice now. High quality service benchmarked. High quality services against benchmarks. Customer satisfaction is measured by your customer. Not what you think the customer thinks, but what the customer thinks. And the customers are going to tell you. They're going to tell you by whether they stay, whether you, whether you, have, whether you have attrition from the customer, whether they stay with you or not. They're going to tell you whether they keep back, keep buying from you, they buy more from you, whether they bring friends to see you. They're going to tell you on Google. They're going to tell you on any other uh, survey you want to possibly give them. And a lot of them will tell you in person uh, in a small business. 
But all you have to do is listen. They're talking to you. Same with employees. Employee satisfaction. Human resources has gotten caught has gotten caught up too much in culture and not enough in people. The human resources organization needs to learn how to put their finger on the pulse of the organization. They need to listen to the people because the people are going to tell them what's going on. It will also allow them to discern the difference between a problem in the culture of the organization and the one disgruntled employee who makes a lot of noise that would make people think there's a problem. What's your attrition? What's your absenteeism rate? What are your HR complaints, ethics complaints? legal complaints. Are they coming from one person or are you starting to get them from lots of places? We had a terrific uh, ethics guy who worked on our team in Boeing in the services business. He was clever because these things can be used by the union as tools because if somebody has filed an HR complaint or an ethics complaint, if you try to lay them off, that's considered retaliation. So in order to protect themselves, they would file a complaint. So they, we learned that. And so we learned how to, how to deal with that. The other thing we learned is that we could shred the data and find out if these, if these complaints would group any place. I mean, a 16,000-person organization, you might get 100 ethics complaints in a month. Out of that, 50% would be frivolous. But 50% were real. And then what you would find as you, as you dug down, it wasn't, you know, all over the one a shotgun. You'd find there was one organization and usually one manager that owned most of those. And you had a leadership problem. Now, does it mean you go fire that poor person? No, not unless they've done something intentionally wrong. It means you've got a leadership problem, a training problem. You've got to go work that. So using, listening to the employees tells you what to go do. Not getting caught up in, in the culture of the day is very important. And HR, and it doesn't matter what day it is because this has been my experience. We didn't have HR in the Marine Corps. Ever since I retired from the Marine Corps and went to work for industry, this has been my experience with HR. You gotta get them to slow down and go dig into the facts. Continuous improvement was one of the other things that fell out of that thing. And the thought process of the leader was, you only go two directions in life, the world's turning. If you're not going forward, you're going backward. And if you're not going backward relative to your own performance, you're certainly going backward relative to your competition. And the last thing was positive cash flow because earnings look good to accountants, the cash pays the bill. So now you know what you gotta do how are you going to do it? That's your strategy. And I love this quote by Michael Porter. Porter says, strategy is the creation of a unique and valuable position involving a different set of activities. Now, what does that mean? Okay. Chester Nimitz said, we're going to leapfrog our way across the Pacific. Well, that's starting to get a little closer. I kind of, I can visualize that. Pat, it's okay. What are we going to do to achieve the vision? And in our case, uh, in, the, in the services business, we had to, this period of survival we had to go through. So our, our strategy became protect and expand 
our core business. Protect was the key word to begin with. Protect and expand our core business. And then look for logical adjacencies to move forward to. And we define the logical adjacency as a, a common cost structure, a common technology, a common customer set. So we weren't going to go from maintaining airplanes to maintaining speedboats. Okay, we're staying in the airplane business. But maybe we're now going to go into other people's airplanes, not just Boeing's. And it led us to go to the A-10 program, which was a Fairchild program. Fairchild doesn't exist anymore. The Air Force needed wings, new wings on the A-10s. We said, hey, we put new wings on stuff all the time. Let's get out there and bid on that. And we did. And we won. And I think they may still be doing a little bit of that today, uh, 10, 15 years later. So that's how that strategy works. And then the third part of the strategy was you always want a small group of your people. Now, Boeing has a big research and development organization. They, they do big stuff. In your own business unit, you want some people who are thinking about what kind of breakthrough thing can I do in what I do? And we were struggling with our KC-135s. We were taking way too long to get them through maintenance modification and overhaul. It's a big job. I mean, tore the airplane totally apart, took all the wiring out. It's a huge, huge job. Um, we were waiting for parts all the time. And a group of us that had been on the F-18 program together who understood the key to earned value management and what earned value management really could do if you use it properly. Not like the government who uses it as a measurement tool, but using it as a management tool. And we tell everybody, we're going we're gonna to figure out a way to put earned value management into the PC-135 PDM. And we went from 300 and something days to 145 days of uh, schedule time, uh, cycle time, and delivering that airplane because we were able to really understand where our parts shortages were. We were able to order parts ahead of time because we did a Pareto analysis on you know, what parts are always necessary, what parts you only need 10% of the time. We had some really bright people that, that just took that idea. You know, the idea came from the front office, from our team, but the people who did it just embraced it and ran with it. And uh, I think, I can't remember how much we cut the cost by, but it was significant. So once you kind of have a, a strategy of let's go, we're going to protect and you know grow our core business. We're going to move the logical adjacencies. We're going to look at these breakthrough opportunities. Now you put together your business plan, your annual operating plan. It's the, the steps you have to go through to get out to that vision. Remember we talked earlier, you got to start out here at the far end and work your way back. And you know what you got to do in year one. Let's put that down. But now it's got to get really specific. It's not only what you're going to do, but what are you looking for out of what you're going to do? Because we are in a business. And, and so we need to look at revenue, cost of goods sold, gross margins, operating costs, you know, get our uh, net operating profit, you know, apply uh, interest, amortization, depreciation, get your, uh, you know, profit after tax. Uh, all those things are outcomes of the things you're doing and you're using earned value management to make sure you're staying on cost and schedule. And if you're not using a full formal earned value management system, you're using the concept that 
you cannot take credit for anything until it's completed. So it teaches you the difference between expended hours and produced hours. It teaches you the difference between having inventory and the parts when you need them and having to wait for inventory. Because it teaches you value of time. And when you combine critical path method with EVM and you work those two in unison, it's like having uh, a GPS system on your program. You know where you are all the time. And when you know where you are all the time, you know what to do. Alan Mulally, who was a colleague of mine at Boeing, went on to become the fabulous CEO of Ford Motor Company. His big mantra was let everybody know the plan because if everybody knows the plan, they'll all work on the plan. And I took that one step forward with our customer and I said, okay, I'm sharing our plan with you. Let's make sure that your team and my team don't spend money that's not in the plan, okay? Because it doesn't suit either one of us to spend money on stuff that's not in the plan. Uh, now, it doesn't mean you can't add something to the plan later if it's better, but not necessary. So we've got all this stuff together. Now we got to go out and convince our customer. How do you convince the customer you bring value? What is, what is your value proposition? It's really three things. The first is, can you do the job? And I call it operational excellence. Can you do whatever it is you say you're going to do? for the amount of money you said you were going to do it for and the time you said you were going to deliver it, cost, schedule, and quality. Will it perform in the customer's hands as well as you expect it to, as well as the customer expected it to? Operational license. Can you do the basics? Can you build what it is or, or support what it is or cook what it is that you said you were going to do in a way that's going to be what people expect. The second thing is you got to really understand your customer. And it's beyond knowledge. You really need to build, and when I say intimate relationship, there's, there's nothing inappropriate about that. There's nothing inappropriate, you know, that the government says, all right, we have to have this hands uh, arm's length relationship. Yes and no. Once there's a request for proposal out and you got competition, you can't have the kind of dialogue. The dialogue has to be ongoing with your customer. So while they're your current customer on your current product, you need to be talking to them. What can we do to make this product better? What, what do you see are the shortcomings of this product? How can we make the next product better? And, and bring them ideas. What about if we did this? The EA18G, which was a replacement for the EA6B as the electronic warfare platform for the United States Navy, came from us in Boeing. We said, we think you can do this. We think you can replace that airplane with this airplane. You can replace four people with two people. We think we have the technology to do that. Here's what we need to do to make it happen. Well, the E-18Gs are still being sold today by Boeing to the United States Navy. And it's a fabulous platform. As a matter of fact, they're bringing it in now for its first upgrade. It's understanding the customer's problems. And oh, by the way, if you can't solve the customer's problems, Helping the customer find somebody that's trustworthy to solve the problem for them. Making sure they understand you care about their needs. Back to Lou Holtz, do you care about me or just my money? And finally, the third thing is you got you to be better than everybody else somehow. You got to have a better technology. You got to have a better cost structure. 
you got to have a better culture. You got to have a better environment. I, I, I have this conversation with my veterinary client. What are you going to do after COVID? Right now, it's curbside. Everybody sits, everybody comes in, they, they park in front of a number, they call on the phone, they say, I'm out here, my pet's in the car. What are you going to do in July when it's 100 degrees? What are you going to do when the governor finally says, I'm, I'm comfortable, you can have people in the, uh, in the hospital? What are you going to do? How are, you going to, are you ready for that transition? How are you going to do it better than the other 12 veterinary hospitals in the county? How are you going to be the first to do it? How are you going to do it better? Because if you're not, people aren't going to sit in a car 100 degrees. They're going to go to the other veterinarian. <laughs> you know, it's common sense. What are you going to do different? You know, it's, it's what is it? We call it breakthrough. I don't care what you call it. It's, it's just the discriminator that says, I want to go here instead of there. Blimpies versus Subway. Which one and why? In my case, neither one, but in which case, why? Uh, and that's got to be your marketing strategy. And, and by the way, people misunderstand marketing and sales. This is marketing. Sales is in the implementation of the marketing plan. So we're not in sales will be in, and we'll talk about sales probably in uh, section three of this three-part uh, program. And finally, once you're all in place, how are you going to manage it? And, and, and that's having some kind of robust, repeatable process that always yields positive results. Okay. It's based on a concept of earned value management. It's data-driven decision-making. Alan Mulally loves to say that data will set you free. It's a paraphrase of, of the gospels. The truth will set you free. And he's right. If you have the data, you can make good decisions. I, I work with Customers who think you look at the data quarterly, I'm thinking, wait a minute, you see bad data at a quarter. What are you going to do with it? Well, I'm going to wait the next quarter to see if it's still bad. So now you've wasted half a year. Then we talk about people like to look at things monthly. Most people look at things monthly. That's okay. Uh, I'm working with a company now where I'm pretty frustrated because they they can't seem to get their monthly data till a month later. So by the time you see it, it's two months old. I'm telling them it's, it's too old. When we were at Boeing running the F-18 program, we had data as of Thursday ready to look at on Monday morning across every airplane in production. We ran into a problem with production about four years later. By this time, we're pretty sophisticated. We've got uh, a pretty well automated manufacturing system with lots of good technology on the shop floor. Our employees had badges with sensors in them so that they could swipe on and off the job. We we didn't have part spins. We had kits. We, we were doing lots of great things. And we started, we, we had some uh, scheduling guys. Came, and I wasn't running F-18. I was, I was in charge of the Navy Marine Corps business, but F-18 was part of that. And I remember calling the F-18 program manager and saying, Occasionally, people just came to me and told me, you're going to miss a delivery. We haven't missed a delivery ever, ever since we started this program. And we ain't going to start today. And he says, I don't know what to do. I said, I do. Send your finance person up to talk to me. Wonderful lady named Virginia Barnes. Smarter than a whip and great and so happy to do it. And I said, I want daily earned value. I want to know every day where every airplane flow is and why is it not on schedule. And our manufacturing people loved it. It helped them so much because they knew where the, you know, it's, it's all about uh, theory of constraints. 
you know, it's, it's where are your bottlenecks, where are your roadblocks, and what can you do to break them loose? There's a great book called The Goal, written by Eli Goldratt. It's thick. It's intimidating. It reads like a romance novel. But when you get done, you all of a sudden realize you've got one heck of a lesson in chaos theory and theory of constraints. You do have to read in this business. But big believer, every week, you ought to know cost, schedule, quality, technical performance, supplier performance, your risks, and where are you with risk management or risk mitigation. And you ought to know whether or not you need help and what kind of help you need and who, who you ought to get it for. Then every month, you want to be able to look at a total financial review, you know, your balance sheet, your statement of cash flows. You want to be able to compare it with plan and uh, year-to-year plan. You want a dashboard so that you, you can see it. You know, if it's, if it's anything but green, you need to ask questions about it and dig into it. The dashboard is nothing but a window on the world that says, I have a problem. I need to go look at it. If something's red, people used to always say, oh, well, red's dead. No, it's not. Red's just information. Red says, I got a big problem, not a small problem. What, am, what are we going to do to go fix that problem? It's all about investigation. Then, then you have to understand what levers to pull. So you have to go to the data behind those numbers on the dashboard. And, and there's a process in lean, uh, in lean manufacturing called 5Y. And literally, it's ask the question why five times, because that's how long it takes you to get to the real truth. And when you get there, then you know what to do to fix the problem. And it's darn much fun. And I'll tell you, uh, you can't do it. All the leader can do is set the culture. If the people don't embrace this, if they don't believe in it, if they don't want to succeed, you, you can't force it. 18 years of running businesses at Boeing out of the 22 years I was there. I had staff jobs for a couple of years. Our teams never missed an operating plan. Never. Why? They liked winning. They loved winning. And they loved the fact that when we won, they they got compensated for it. But most important, they just like winning. They like being able to say, we did a great job. And uh, we, we won the Collier Trophy for our work on the F-18 ENF. Collier Trophy is a trophy given by the National Association of Astronautics and Aeronautics. It is the most prestigious trophy given out each year for the most impressive thing done in, in aerospace. And we won that in 1999. I took 600 people from all over that program to Washington, D.C. to be there to to get that, I would have taken all 6,000 if I possibly could, but the company wasn't really up on me taking 6,000 people away from DC, but they did allow me to take 600. But they represented everybody. We had 600, we had union guys, and we had you know, engineers and support guys and people off the corporate staff and everybody that, anybody that helped us, they were represented there. And it was so much fun. It was one of the highlights of my life. So it takes us to the last thing, which is, is uh, creating a team. You can read Jim Collins, Good to Great, Get the Right People on the Bus, Put Them in the Right Seats. That really sounds terrific. Oh, God, he sounds like he's just brilliant. Now, how do you do that? <laughs> how do you get the right people? How do you know they're the right people? How do you know it's the right seat? You know, thanks for the advice, Jim, but we'll, we'll work on that. Now, it's 
the, the leader has to create the culture and the system to attract the right people. If it's a toxic environment, you're not going to get the right people. You cannot allow toxicity to creep into your environment, even if even if it means making some really tough decisions about people you like, if, if they just become toxic to the organization. You always have to treat people with respect. Now, I'm not a huge Alabama football fan because I went to Notre Dame, and they keep beating us here recently. But I got to tell you, I'm a Nick Saban fan. How does he get? How does he beat everybody? Is he the most brilliant coach in the world? Urban Meyer would probably tell you no. How does he get that? He's got a great system. And he's got a great culture. It's a culture of winning. People go to Alabama expecting to win. And you know what? If you go someplace expecting to win, what are you going to do? You're going to win. He's created that, that environment. Vince Lombardi did that with the Packers. I can't remember the coach now that coached the Dallas Cowboys for years when, when Roger Staubach was playing. He created that environment. They expected to win. And because they expected to win, they drew winners to them. So use your vision and your values to hire, to promote. Make sure you use your compensation wisely to reward the right stuff. Now, reward the kind of things that you really want people to do. Compliment people in the direction you want them to go. Look for reasons to compliment people in the region, in the, in the direction you want them to go. If you provide an excellent total experience for your employees, they will provide an excellent total experience for your clients. All it takes is one rude, uninformed receptionist, especially if you're a small business. To really hurt. Everybody's important. I always remember there was a, a gentleman who, who was responsible for cleaning my office. Now, he didn't work for me, he worked for facilities maintenance, which was a nowhere in my chain of command. But I felt like he was my guy because when the customers came in, where they come, they came to my office and the customers were military and they expected the place to look military. And I understood what that was. And Chris Simmons was the gentleman's name. Chris knew how to make that office look great. And he took great pride to make an office look great. And he and I would have some fun conversations. And I never missed an opportunity to publicly thank Chris Simmons because every employee is important. If they're not, they ought not, they ought not have them. If the employee is not necessary, why are you spending money? So this is the foundation. That's how you build it. Next, we'll talk about how you implement it. And finally, we'll talk about how you make sure that you're staying on track. So parting shots for today. Remember that all of us are better than any one of us. Inclusion, diversity. I don't care what's going on in the world outside of your organization. Everybody's got to be embraced equally. And it has to be a meritocracy where, where people are, are valued based on the value they bring. And if people are struggling, your first task is to find out why and help them help them come up to a level where they then contribute and, and are a part of this, this wonderful organization. I, I've been blessed to be part of some fabulous organizations, starting with the United States Marine Corps. And I guarantee you, nobody much cared when things got tough. And, and, and I led Marines in North Norway 
for two years and, and NATO operations during the wintertime where the weather would get really bad, we'd be minus 40 ambient temperature Fahrenheit and minus 70, minus 80 wind chill. Nobody really asked whether you were a Southerner, a Northerner, whether you were Black, White, or Asian. It, it was, you know, we, we were all Marines and we were all sticking together to stay alive. That's my view of all of us are better than any one of us. And it's not just race and gender. It's the culture that comes with that. Not only did I want a race and gender mix on my leadership team, I wanted a young and old mix. I wanted youth and, and, and the energy that comes with youth and the inexperience. But with that inexperience comes some great ideas that experienced people don't believe will happen. You've got to embrace all of that. What matters is the outcome of the processes. And finally, if you really want to go beyond this and go into more depth, go find some old books. Because the old books are where the fundamentals are. And the fundamentals don't change. Peter Drucker, Michael Porter, Michael Collins, Ron Sharon. Go read those people's books. And then you can relate that back to the conversation today. You're listening to Leading Successful Businesses Audiocast, sponsored by Ascension Transformation Solutions. For more resources, visit ascensionts.com to learn about how you can shape your business future through strategic transformation.